I think action should have consequences, and I think NATO collectively should be treating Turkey like the bad actor it is. It's Thanksgiving week, and we are eager to welcome you to the latest episode of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, we have with us a full house, Jody Herman, who is the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Dana Struhl, former senior staff member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and Matthew Hyman, NSI Associate Director of Global Security, and a former attorney at the National Security Division at the Department of Justice. And I'm Lester Munson, senior fellow at NSI and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. This week, we're going to spend some time looking at Turkey and Iran and how developments in these two countries might be impacting the region. So let's tackle Iran first. Um, Things have been changing in Iran, at least as we see them from Washington. Uh, Just a few months ago, we had a near military conflict between the United States and Iran. Uh, An American drone was shot down. The Iranians launched a missile strike on a huge Saudi oil facility. Also, tensions between Israel and Iran have stepped up significantly in Syria and uh, elsewhere in the region. Palestinian Islamic Jihad is shooting missiles from Gaza into Israel, and Israel is responding. In Lebanon, as in Iraq, popular protests are at least somewhat caused by Iranian meddling in local politics and security arrangements. And now in Iran itself, we have massive protests. Uh, The Internet has been shut down. This is starting to sound uh, vaguely familiar, the stuff we're seeing in Iran we've seen before. Dana, do you want to take it from here and kind of talk about what we're seeing right now in Iran? Well, it's difficult to know exactly what we're seeing because we don't have a back channel with the government of Iran. We obviously don't have a diplomatic presence in Iran, um, and most of our allies or partners that are talking to the Iranians are really angry at us for our, our current posture and policies toward Iran. That being said, what it appears to be are very dispersed protests, not only in the capital, Tehran, but in other parts of the country, um, mostly protesting that against the Iranian regime spending money on Iranian efforts abroad rather than domestically, um, and also uh, several other things like corruption, economic opportunity. The spark appears to be um, some taxes on oil in Iran. Uh, the supreme leader gave a speech over the weekend where he said he was not going he was going to support continuing to tax oil given the amount of sanctions pressure on Iran. What's interesting to me about the protests we're seeing right now and whether or not the United States should do something, if the United States were to do something in support of the protesters, what would that be? What would it look like? Is essentially this is the exact same debate that was taking place in Washington in 2009 during the Green Revolution in the early days of the Obama administration, which has been so maligned on the right side since this is about fault lines and where the left and the right agree, disagree, converge and diverge. There was so much criticism from the right side of the foreign policy establishment about the Obama administration's decision to not proactively engage, to pick a side, etc. Although today, to me, it looks like just more hand-wringing. So you mentioned uh, before we started the podcast that you thought this was Groundhog Day. Of course, in in the actual movie Groundhog Day, Bill Murray wins. He gets the girl. They live happily happily ever after, presumably. Do we we see a happy ending for uh, uh, what's happening in Iran right now? I guess... You know, again, 
so we're not seeing protests, as you mentioned in your introduction, not just in Iran, but in Lebanon, in Iraq, et cetera. And what I am not seeing is a response, a coordinated response by the U.S. government explicitly talking about what these governments need to do to open up space, to tackle corruption, to provide economic opportunity, to reform politically, et cetera. So is this Groundhog Day? Perhaps. Maybe Bill Murray wins at the end, but not after repeated and repeated failures first. Jody. So I think the really interesting thing that we're seeing in Iran is is new protests, but the question is, is why, right? It is imminently about the change or increase in oil prices, but that's basically an accumulation of a lot of frustration on behalf of a lot of Iranians about corruption and the inability of the administration to solve their internal economic problems, complicated by the fact that it is clear that Iran has massively overextended itself in its near abroad, both economically, but apparently possibly also politically, right? So they're they're extended in Syria. They've got a war in Yemen that they can't extract themselves from. Now they've got internal problems at home. They can't continue to pay for all of those activities. Remember, we're also supporting uh, Hezbollah in, in Lebanon as well. They can't continue to pay for all of those activities and be able to manage their economy, their domestic economy, uh, and keep things calm on the home front. So the question is, in my head, is like, have they so overextended themselves that they can't get out of this situation, making today maybe a little bit different than 10 years ago? So, Matthew, let me let me phrase the question for you a little differently. President Trump is pursuing a policy of maximum pressure on Iran. It's had an impact on the Iranian economy. Their oil exports exports are way down. It's not, I don't think it's totally unreasonable to draw a direct line between that policy and some of the protests we're seeing in Iran right now. So what's, what's the response? This seems like uh, a natural outcome of a maximum pressure campaign. What's the plan from the administration now? What's their strategy? Well, I think that is the question that needs to be asked, and I hope that there is a plan that's coming. Uh, because I think I think Dana has asked the right question about, okay, so we've gotten them to this position. What do you do now? I do give the Trump administration some credit, though, as you mentioned, Les, because without this maximum pressure campaign, I don't think Iran is on its knees economically. And just to you know sharpen that point, the IMF says the economy is going to contract 9.5% this year. Uh, 35% of uh, young people that are college-educated can't get a job. Um, and the real is trading at its lowest level to the dollar, and inflation is at 40%. So this is, you know, the protests um, are absolutely generated because of the, the economic shambles that they're in. And the economic shambles they're in is because of all the, the sanctions regime that's been put in place. But to me, that's, that's the first step, is to get uh, Iran's economy on its knees and shake the foundation's uh, in terms of the connection between the people and its government. But the second step is the one that I think Dana is asking about, which is what is the go-forward strategy? And it would be nice to hear whether it's Secretary Pompeo or Special Representative Hook or someone else talk about what that longer-term plan is in a concrete way. 
I'm just going to add here, building on what both Matthew and Jody said, is so we need the second step, which is what is the administration going to do about it? But then there's the third step, which is if the Iranian, if the if the regime in Tehran is facing such pressure from the maximum pressure strategy, the economy is contracting. They may not be able to continue all the adventurism abroad. Although the whole point of what Iran does abroad is that they do it on the cheap, right? It's not conventional. It's asymmetric. But the question is, do they react in a way to intimidate or provoke the international community into responding and perhaps giving them some relief, which we know President Trump at one point during the U.N. General Assembly was willing to put a bunch of sanctions relief on the table just for a meeting with Rouhani. So the question is, when you have a regime who perhaps feels such pressure from these protests and the protesters that it was provoked into turning off the Internet, which is not something that a regime feeling safe and secure and confident does, do they then retaliate or react by escalating abroad? So, Les, you mentioned the um, tanker attacks, the drone downing, and then the attack on the Saudi Aramco facility. Do we see something else like that actually challenging the United States to react? So there's the second-tier question of what does the United States do in response to the protests, but I think there's then a third-tier question of if we see the Iranians react, so we're actually entering a period of heightened escalation or potential for conflict, what does the United States do then? So one of the things the Iranians are doing is they're enriching uranium again. Now, it's not quite uh, weapons grade, according to the reports we've seen, uh, but it's they're, they're going down the pathway towards uh, weaponizing nuclear material, which they did before. Um, they're, uh, and they're, they're taking even more steps than they originally took a couple of months ago uh, when they finally decided to get out of the JCPOA. So they are being provocative. Uh, in some ways, this is the most provocative thing they could do. Jody, how do we what's, – what's the response? Is there an administration response? What's Congress doing? So I think, Where is this going? So I think Dana's is exactly on the right track, which is you need to look at what's left in Iran's toolkit. What are the levers that they can pull – uh, to advance their situation. Uh, I personally, having watched Iran for many years, think that they have to take an action that calms things on the home front first, right? They can't, they can't proceed uh, on any path unless they can settle uh, the situation at home. I'm going to presume that this internet shutdown is a, is a temporary measure uh, that was intended for a short period of time until they get through the protests related to the increase in fuel prices. But I think that the, the risk isn't that they just do something externally, although that's a big risk. The other massive lever that they have to pull is on their, on their nuclear program, right? So we've seen them taking baby steps, right? They've exceeded their stockpile levels a little bit. They've enriched a little bit more than they were supposed to. And I say they're baby steps. They're real breaches of the agreement, but not in a way that puts makes anybody think that they're actually taking a step toward nuclear capability. They're baby steps. They could take, you know, larger steps down that road. And then the question becomes, does the EU pull out of the deal as a result of that? I don't think we know who's, that, that. Who's actually left in the deal? The U.S. Right, is so, out. Iran is violated. Who's who's left observing this thing? Right. So the EU's in. Uh, Iran's in, but they're not getting anything out of it, right? They're not getting anything out of this. In fact, their economy might be worse off now than it was when we first put those sanctions uh, into place in 2012. 
That's right, because if you recall, uh, the, the EU offer to Iran post the U.S. departure from the JCPOA was, we'll set up this special trading vehicle, and it'll be basically an end run around the U.S. sanctions regime, which didn't work because no bank wanted to participate in it, even if they got all the comfort letters in the world from the EU and the respective European governments. So the EU's in, uh, incentives to Iran to stick around have been largely zero. Um, what I do think is interesting about um, what both Jody and Dana, Dana have said is that if Iran starts to take more than baby steps, so they really do we've, – we've seen news reports that they're operating again at the Fort Al facility. Um, I, I think it does push in favor of the Europeans moving more towards the American stance on this. So well, while I said earlier I'd like to see Secretary Pompeo articulate sort of a vision, I do think in large measure time is on the U.S. side in the sense that it can – you know, all the factors are pointing at Iran right now. They're under pressure. They've got to do something to calm down the domestic audience. They've got to do something to push back. The thing is, all the pushback mechanisms they have, whether it's ramping up mayhem in the Middle East, whether it's ramping up their activities on the um, nuclear weapon front, are all things that redound to the U.S.'s benefit in terms of getting its European and other allies to align with it on seeing what Iran really is. So Iran doesn't have a lot of great options. Right. So play this out, Matthew, if you would, just a little bit further, right? So let's say that Iran actually takes another step in its nuclear program, and the EU reacts as you predict that they will. Maybe they come closer to the U.S. position. Maybe they actually trigger the the uh, the dispute mechanism in the right. JCPOA right. instead but, of talking about it. But really, like then, then what happens? Right? Does is Iran doing that because they want a new negotiation, or do they no longer believe that that's a, a possible mechanism for them, or do they do it so that they can actually make a dash for nuclear capability? In which case, we've got a whole different problem on our hands. I, I suspect they do it because they're hoping that some European weak, weak link will say, oh, well, well, we really should race off to Tehran and have a meeting with them. Now, that being said, if Iran is of a mind to say, forget it, we're not going to get help from any quarter, we're going to race towards building a nuclear weapon, well, then we're in some very dangerous territory. But again, I think if if you gave me a choice between holding Iran's cards or ours, I'd rather have ours because I think the consequences of them taking a large step will largely align most of the free world um, on taking some pretty severe action against Iran. So, so Dana, if if Matthew's right and the Europeans are coming the coming the way of America and are going to line up against what Iran is doing, we have a situation that's very similar to eight or nine years ago when President Obama first started talking about doing a nuclear deal with Iran. There's some really tough economic sanctions on them. Their economy's in the tank. Uh, the civilized world is united against them. Could we see another nuclear deal? I think we could. And I actually think if the Iranians were smart and the Europeans were smart, next year is the year to do it. Because if you look at the Trump administration's record on negotiating, it is Groundhog Day over and over and over. Look at NAFTA. We got USMCA, a couple little tweaks here and there, and maybe Congress will pass it because they don't want the pain. You look at Trump, next year, impeachment, election, needs a so, win, wants so, a Nobel Peace Prize. They could take the JCPOA. They could put a little plus here, a little plus there. 
the the structure of the Europeans already exists from when the Trump administration attempted to negotiate with the Europeans in the early days of the Trump administration. So I think a lot of the text and the structure of a negotiation already exists. Um, so this could be a win for Trump. And frankly, with a Republican-controlled Senate, this is a good opportunity for everyone to, to actually get the maybe Iranians it, back into some Maybe agreement. it'll be submitted as a treaty this time. So I think we'd all agree that a new war in the Middle East with a new commitment of American troops is not on a 2020 election year agenda for any of the candidates. Well, it seems like we're 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 pulling troops out more than we're sending out new ones. But but right. Dana, so if you play this out, your only option is a negotiation. So Dana, but I want to I want to push you a little bit on what you were describing. So you're basically saying the the situation might be ripe for a, a new nuclear deal that looks a lot like the old nuclear deal. The whole point of the maximum pressure strategy, if you take the Trump administration's officials at their word, which is that it's not regime change, but to get to a better agreement, but they've never articulated specifically what a better agreement looks like. And we look at the negotiating history of this administration, regardless of what the issue is. The president seems willing to provide sanctions relief for some sort of agreement that looks just a little better than what previous administrations, whether Democratic or Republican, had negotiated. So do I think next year might be an actual great opportunity? It's actually in most of the Democratic primary candidates' interest as well, because who knows what the next Congress configuration and if there will be a new administration. The Trump administration, he can tweet that this is the best deal ever and it's so much better than the JCPOA, and I think it would make it very difficult for a lot of Republicans to break with him on this issue. Matthew. I do think, though, there will be difficulty in striking a deal that doesn't go broader than the JCPOA did in in terms of Iran's ballistic missile activity and its support for its various proxies around the Middle East. Because if if the deal is just, uh, call it nuclear plus, not those things, then it does make all the criticism that the Trump administration lobbed against the JCPOA look really non-existent because why would you strike the same deal? So, yeah, so wait, are you, are you saying... That's a perfectly rational, reasonable argument for a situation and an executive branch that doesn't actually operate in that way. So I think we yeah. know exactly what a new nuclear deal potentially looks like, right? It starts with no enrichment from the very onset. No enrichment. Expanded inspection regime. Expa- and real a real inspection Including regime. Including military I was, sites. I was told that the JCPOA inspection regime was the toughest in world history. Excuse me. It may be, be but be clearly specific. it's insufficient. What else, what else could we possibly do? Fine. No enrichment, a real inspections regime, no R&D, and a much, much longer duration. Well, and I think you'd also want to include something about ballistic missile technology development and I think you'd want to have it speak in some form or fashion or put some breaks in some way on support of proxies. Sure. So if the Trump administration can negotiate all those things, fantastic. I would totally support that agreement. I'm not holding my breath. And I think everybody will. Republicans and Democrats will support that that agreement if we can get it. I I think that's... We would have an amazing Fault Lines podcast about that amazing best deal ever. It would be perfect. Well, I think it's the only kind of deal that makes any sense given Iran's history and the way it's operated for the last 40 years. And if you can't get that deal, then why strike a deal with Iran? That was the criticism of the JCPOA is it was like putting your finger on one part of a water balloon and having it blow out the other places. The reason that we came to an agreement with Iran, whether you liked the deal or didn't like the deal or didn't think it was tough enough, was the alternative was a military action. No. 
Well, let's but let's let's kind of push something that you mentioned earlier, which is uh, the possibility of U.S. military action. Just just a few weeks ago, the U.S. Uh, President Trump abruptly announced he was pulling troops out of Syria, which was something that only President Erdogan was calling for, and he and he wants to brag that he's bringing troops home and he's ending wars. It really seems highly unlikely, given that that predicate, that the U.S. is going to respond military, militarily to Iran in the Middle East. When, when they launch an attack, when they shot down one of our drones, we didn't respond at all. So what does so, that do to our negotiating so position what, then? What, exactly. What does it do to our negotiating position for next year? How likely is it that we'd be able to negotiate something like uh, a deal on ballistic missile development or support for Iranian proxies? I do think a big determinant on whether or not something could be negotiated, especially along the lines Matthew outlined, which is not that I disagree with it. I just don't know how realistic it is to address all of those things inside one agreement. But if if the United States is not willing to put a credible threat of military force on the table, at a minimum, you need to be aligned with your allies and partners, both in the region and outside. And right now, we're not even there. And we don't know who the next prime minister of Israel will be, right? If you want to change up the situation from where we were before, we had a very credible military threat, possibly from the U.S., but almost certainly from Israel at that point in time. I don't think as of this airing we know what uh, Netanyahu's uh, likely uh, outcome is. I think that's fair, and I think both Dana and Jody have pointed out a couple of the Rubik's Cube variables that we could be talking about if we're actually talking about a, a negotiated some sort of a treaty that covers some of the areas that I talked about. I agree that without a credible military threat, all of this is very hard to drive forward. Um, and and so I think it's a big we'll see. But I think that the most likely outcome is there's no deal that's struck that's anywhere near what I outlined, and there's no deal at all. All right. So uh, I was going to have a different exit question, but here's going to he'll be our exit question uh, for this for this segment before we get to talking about Turkey in the next segment. Here's the exit question. So. Can President Trump, given his um, uh, salesman-like abilities and his track record in office, can he sell a new nuclear deal with Iran that looks pretty much exactly like the old deal and get his party to support it? Yes or no, Dana? Yes. Jody? I think he can get a deal. I don't know if he gets his party to support it. Matthew? I think he'll have a hard time getting the important foreign policy voices in his party to support it. He'll get some people to support it because Trump says it, but it's hard for me to envision uh, Mitt Romney, Marco Rubio, Lindsey Graham all coming out saying this is a great deal. I think it's an election year. I think he can get it done. I think he'd be able to sell it. So I think that's uh, that's like three votes in favor of him being able to do it, kind of one combined vote against him being able to do it. All right. Let's, uh, let's shift to our next topic, uh, which is Turkey, another problematic country in the Middle East. Uh, President Erdogan was in Washington last week. He had a real interesting meeting with President Trump. Uh, they had a press conference. He brought out an iPad. He showed a little video. Uh, notably, before the press conference, uh, President Trump actually had Erdogan meet with five Republican senators behind closed doors where they got a little bit of a tougher line rather than kind of the love fest that President Trump gave them. Uh, Congress itself is very anti-Turkey right now, very anti-Erdogan. The House has passed new sanctions on Turkey, which is a NATO ally, of course. The Senate is considering several proposals, one from Senator Risch, one from Senator Graham, 
uh, one from a uh, resolution from Senator McConnell, and there's also the House language. So there's a variety of things spinning out there. Uh, various Democrats are supporting some of those. Uh, so Turkey itself continues to be a bad actor in the region. Uh, it's it bought a missile system from Russia, which is totally incompatible with its uh, NATO defense requirements. Uh, Erdogan's been in power for 16 years. His party has suffered uh, a lot of local losses in the last year in Ankara, in Istanbul. It looks like he's he's politically vulnerable. And yet President Trump is embracing him and giving him kind of a platform to sustain himself. Is this is this a smart play? Does this make sense for the U.S. to kind of back a guy who may be on his way out? Dana, what do you think? Well, the short answer is no, and U.S. policy shouldn't be about backing individual leaders. It should be about the country, the government, the people, and whether or not that strategic partnership is advancing U.S. national security interests. At this point in time, we could actually lay out the various um, objections that the Turkish government has to U.S. policy, some of which I think are reasonable. Um, From the Turkish perspective, the United States armed a terrorist group on their southern border, uh, we can talk about that less if you would like to. And the U.S. has some very legitimate objections to Turkish decisions, recent decision-making, not only internally in Turkey but externally, the purchase of this S-400 system from Russia, um, actions in Syria, etc. I think the, the danger here is that the relationship is over-personalized in the Turkey-Erdogan relationship, but at so, some in the executive branch would say that that relationship, because there's such a romance or recognition of the authoritarian in each of them, um, that that we can use that relationship to, to achieve common interests. And we haven't even been able to do that. We can't move past this S-400 issue. We haven't been able to move past the Syria issue. Nothing. I think Erdogan handed Trump back his letter that, you know, hey, you should that. take this good deal I got going for you. Don't make a mistake. That Don't be a fool! Of, that exclamation fifth grade point. letter. Yeah, and it's, he got it handed back to him. Maybe he wants to see a revised version. Jody, do you have a different take? So I think we need to be talking about something a little bit different. So in geopolitical strategic terms, I think the most important issue that we're not talking about is NATO. I mean, people are talking about it, but, but the biggest threat to the United States' long-term security that has arisen over the course of the last year is whether or not the NATO alliance is going to hold. And the president of France literally put that issue on the table last week when he called it a dying alliance. I think, you know, Chancellor Merkel rightly rejected that view. But the mere fact that we're having a public conversation about whether or not the NATO alliance is going to continue ought to be something that we're all very, very concerned about. Turkey is part of that alliance. It's part of the reason that this question came up. But it's not the only reason that that question came up. And that conversation has me terrified. All right. So what's the explain? I think it's a great issue. It's a fascinating topic. Talk about what Turkey's been doing for the last couple of years and how it plays into this question about uh, where the alliance is going. Is it are, are, Do we see French and German concerns about Turkey? We know they've, they've never welcomed Turkey into the EU. They've had concerns about that country uh, going back generations. What's the, what's the thing that's under, undermining the alliance right so now? So just on the Turkish side – Right. You have, I think, two primary, maybe three things, if you want to count the S-400 as its own thing. But I would put that in the category of Turkey's 
growing and warm relationship with Vladimir Putin and with Russia. We're directly at odds with the idea of the NATO alliance. And then second, Turkey's internal actions are also directly contradictory to the purposes of NATO, which have to do with democracy, individual liberty, and the rule of law. That's what's laid out in the preamble to the treaty, those ideas. Turkey, over the last number of years under Erdogan, has instituted a major crackdown on all forms of civil society, academia, independent media within Turkey. They, they took something like 100,000 people were removed from their, from their civil service jobs after the attempted coup. This is not a democratic government, and I think we have to consider what it means to have a non-democratic rogue actor inside of NATO. Matthew, what are your thoughts about the alliance? Uh, you know, just a few months ago or a couple of years ago, we were talking about President Trump being a threat to the NATO alliance. He's been calling for uh, member countries to spend more on defense resources, which I would actually argue strengthens the alliance. Uh, some of the st- some of the ways he say it, he said it weren't terrific, but his basic point I think actually strengthened the alliance. What it, you know, and now we've we've got this Turkey question. What are, what are your thoughts about NATO? Well, I I agree with Jody insofar as the threats to NATO are very concerning. Um, but I, I think the threats to NATO, uh, with all due respect to President Macron, come from two places, Turkey and the Europeans themselves. Turkey, because it's a bad actor for all the reasons that Jody articulated. I mean, I think they have more more journalists in prison in Turkey than any other country in the world. Um, and he is an autocrat, and he told the world he is. I mean, you know, years and years ago, he just, you know, the famous line about democracy is a trolley car, and you get off of it when you're tired of riding it. Um, he told us what his intentions were, and guess what? He's actually acting consistent with his uh, statements and intentions. So I think, I th- and, and the, the other threat of Europeans not contributing their fair share in terms of defense spending to support NATO, those are the two problems, primary problems that NATO faces right now. I think in terms of what do you do about Turkey within NATO, it would be nice to see um, NATO starting to treat Turkey like a bad actor and starting to isolate it. And maybe the U.S. should think about moving its 50 nuclear warheads to Jordan or Greece. And maybe it should start thinking about moving personnel and material, not all of it, because you don't want to lose your leverage. You don't want to lose sight of the fact that Erdogan's not going to be there forever. But I think action should have consequences. And I think NATO collectively should be treating Turkey like the bad actor it is. Dana, let's let's kind of bring this back to uh, the way the current our current chief executive is behaving. He's embracing Erdogan publicly. He says the nicest possible things about Erdogan. Maybe privately behind the scenes, it's a little bit more balanced, but in public, it's it's a love fest. Is that is that warping our views? Are we are we even capable of making smart decisions about the NATO alliance and Turkey's role in it right now? So we, if you mean the United States or the U.S. government, of course we are capable of making smart decisions, developing a strategy, stating objectives, resourcing and implementing that effectively. But that is really hard to do with the current commander-in-chief because of the wild way that he makes decisions and the unpredictability of it. Um, And I would just add a third issue into what Matthew articulated about the problems with the NATO alliance right now. There's Turkey. There's the EU countries not meeting their defense spending thresholds. But it's also the United States questioning its commitment to the NATO alliance. Like the first time Trump went to a NATO summit and refused to express um, support for Article 5, right? Well, he did come around and and say he supported Article 5. But the fact 
the fact that this was even in the headlines, that the president may not want to make this commitment, introduced doubt about U.S. commitment and U.S. leadership, which started to unravel. But but let's be honest, Dana, the, the failure of the Europeans to properly fund and meet their commitments far predated Trump. Absolutely. And, so, and other administrations were working on with the Europeans on getting and, in. And, and, that's an internal and, governance issue, right? That's an issue that has to be brought up. It should be brought up. You're right about it. President Trump is right about the European allies paying their fair share, but it's an internal governance issue. It doesn't go to the sustainability of NATO as an alliance. Of course it does. I mean, the NATO's sustainability alliance means nothing if you don't have the men and material to execute NATO missions. What so, I, but it does what, mean something it, because it's meant something for all these years, even if they weren't meeting their thresholds. And I think the point is there's ways to work on them meeting their thresholds other than publicly berating them. Well, I think publicly berating them has caused them to actually step it up in a way that we hadn't seen. And then you have Macron Obama. and The Economist calling and, it a brain dead alliance. Well, but I, I find it and I don't agree with him. Well, and I don't want to misstate what you two are saying, but it seems like you're more concerned about saying the right things about NATO than actually doing right by your NATO commitments. I'm, I'm it feels like you're more worried about the rhetoric. I think there are internal conversations to be had. There's like the inside the family conversation and there's the outside the family narrative. And you really need to keep them separate. I, yeah, I, I disagree. The, the current, the current administration is not very good at the quiet conversation. I they want to do it all uh, on TV. I agree with that. But I would just say the inside the family conversations had not really had any effect on our European partners for years and years. I, I don't disagree. With all that. right. Let's try to let's try to take these uh, fascinating comments and ideas and point them in a positive direction. Right. The U.S. The U.S. seems to be going through an isolationist phase right now, a little bit stronger than it was uh, 15 or 20 years ago. There's there's a real, uh, I think, political popularity to things like uh, ending endless wars and and bringing troops home, even if it has bad consequences in the Middle East. On the other hand, uh, the U.S. voters support for the U.S. military is terrific. Uh, It is the most important, you know, the most well-regarded institution in our country right now. Better than and Amtrak. That's in, <laughs> indeed. Uh, and the NATO is a military alliance, and it's something that I think a lot of people perceive as part and parcel of what the American military existence is. Like, NATO is, is a part of us, and we're a part of NATO. Is, is there a way to address a couple of problems here? One is that the American people no longer have the stomach for being or quite the stomach that they used to for being involved globally, and also that uh, NATO's teetering a little bit right now for what could be three or four different reasons. Is there is there a, is there an opportunity for someone here to step up and reinvigorate the alliance, and at the same time, kind of bolster American confidence about its role in the world? I, I think it's it's a collective action problem. So I, I think the U.S. can certainly lead in this regard, but I think the U.S. needs help from the European allies in NATO. Uh, and I think it would be great if there was a meeting where they sort of held hands and recommitted to the importance of NATO. Um, but I also think it would be nice to see some actual strategy come out of that, too, as well, to see NATO start thinking strategically about the Arctic, to see NATO come up with a strategy vis-a-vis uh, Russia, to see NATO speaking with one voice about Iran and issues in the Middle East. I mean, those are the things that invigorate an alliance. And if you can't get there, then 
you know, I think it just kind of continues to move along and, it, and it's kind of the course it's on right now. I don't think it's going to fall apart. I don't think it's going to end, but I think it could be a lot better than it is. Jody. Uh- I generally, uh, I generally agree with that. I just think we all need to consider what the world looks like, what U.S. national security architecture looks like in the absence of NATO, and that should motivate all of us to work a little bit harder to sustain it. Yeah, sure, there's an opportunity. Um, and I do think there's this disparity in how politicians talk to the American people about how the America, how America carries an oversized burden when it comes to security in the rest of the world and also what alliances do for us. For your average American, how does an alliance, how does an international partnership work for us? So NATO is a perfect opportunity where if you have strong alliances and you have capable, ready militaries, it means that American service members do not have to deploy on their own every time there's an issue. So this is partnership. Of course there's an opportunity. I'm just very pessimistic that this administration at this point in time, given the history of of very negative rhetoric between this White House and the NATO alliance, is going to be able to seize that opportunity. Although, here you go, Les. Secretary General thanks President Trump for his commitment to NATO. You want to you want to say what this means? The uh, uh, just that after all of the rhetoric last week and a lot of this questioning about whether or not Turkey is a reliable partner and ally within the context of the NATO alliance, the Secretary General of NATO he was talking about how all of these countries are uh, contributing extra money or are spending more money on their defense budgets uh, to the tune of a hundred billion dollars makes a, makes a difference in their commitments to NATO, and we're starting to see countries get. Uh, much closer to or exceeding the two percent threshold that they're they should be spending on their defense that contributes to our collective defense. So that's you know there like there were some as much as as much as he was criticized at the time. Like in fairness to President Trump, uh, he was criticized for saying tough things about NATO. Some of which was merited. Some of that criticism was merited. But at its core, when he was urging our allies to spend more defense, that's I think that actually strengthened. The alliance. I, so I give credit to the Secretary General here for for highlighting that. All right, let's bring it back to Turkey, uh, since that's kind of where we started, and uh, and Jody, Jody took us to uh, to NATO, which is entirely appropriate. But let's come back to Turkey before we do the exit question. So. Um, Things have changed in the Middle East in the last 20 years. Erdogan came to power in 2001. How, how have Turkey's interests in the Middle East and Europe changed? Has there, is, it, is it possible that Turkey is really no longer suited for NATO membership anymore, that their defense requirements and that their other goals militarily and national security-wise are just not necessarily compatible with the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Maybe maybe it's a natural thing for them to move on to some sort of different security arrangement. Matthew. Um, that may be less. I'd like to see what Turkey's behavior is like post-Erdogan before you decide on kicking them out of NATO. You know, if, if there are successive Turkish administrations that act in this way, then I think you've got to get to some tough thinking among NATO members as to whether Turkey fits in the alliance. In terms of your question about what has changed, I think a couple of things have changed. Number one, Turkey's incentives to cooperate with the European countries has significantly diminished as the likelihood of it ever exceeding to the EU went away. Um, I think Turkey, upon that happening, started thinking about a more independent foreign policy where it wasn't so heavily dependent on the U.S. and started looking to Russia and others for help. I also think Erdogan, being the paranoid autocrat that he is, was very unnerved by the seeming 
U.S. support slash acquiescence to what we saw in the Arab Spring. And so I think there are a lot of things that play into what Turkey's done, but I think it it all flows through Erdogan. So I'd really like to see what happens once Erdogan's gone, whether it's someone from his party or the opposition party that comes in. How does Turkey behave then? And I don't think we're too far away from seeing that change. And I also think the flip side to that question is, is, is it natural for Turkey to seek something else because they're not NATO compatible? The other side of that question is, are we are we prepared to to deal with the reality of what that looks like? A really deep Turkey-Russia relationship, a deeper Turkey-China relationship. We know that Hawk Bank, a Turkish state-controlled mm-hmm. bank, was uh, apparently involved in the largest Iran sanctions evasion scheme that we know about. So a deeper Turkey-Iran relationship. Are all, all of what that looks like, where Turkey is not in our umbrella, even if it's a difficult and at times tense relationship, in the context of great power competition and what aggressive revisionist powers like China and Russia look like? Are we prepared for what it looks like to execute our foreign policy or or protect our national security if Turkey is not in the NATO alliance? Jody. Right. So I would just say if I, I think that Matthew's right about this. I think we need to give this a little bit of space and see what happens when Erdogan's not in power. And to that end, I actually do think that's largely where Congress is. Their responses have been direct responses to specific actions, right? Mm-hmm. Sanctioning Turkish officials, preventing uh, the export of U.S. or use of U.S. defense materials, sanctioning Hulk Bank, uh, even passing their meaning genocide resolution, which I wholly support. But these are all steps that are directed at Erdogan uh, and, and at actions that he's taken. And I think we need to be careful, as we do, say, with with Putin and Russia, that we're not anti-Turkey, right? We can be concerned about Erdogan and think that he's an authoritarian without being actually being anti-Turkish, anti-Turkish, anti-Turkish people. And we need to separate out their, their kind of the poor leadership in Turkey right now from the state itself. All right, and just for the record, I think it'd be nuts to kick Turkey out of NATO. I'm really just asking the question. I think we should be working very hard to try and keep them as oriented towards the West as we possibly can. Uh, Exit question for this uh, second of two segments. Does Erdogan remain in power through the end of 2020? Matthew, yes or no? It all depends on the economy. And uh, I I don't know where the economy is going to go. I know it was on its knees in 2018. It's come back a little bit. Uh, uh, this year. So I I think it it depends on how people feel about their future and prospects in Turkey. Jody? I think he stays for the time being. Dana? Yes. Turkey, even if its democracy is fracturing and eroding, it still actually is a democracy. Mm -hmm. There are elections. Erdogan's party did not do well in the last round of local elections. And the last time I checked, um, presidential elections were relatively recently. Mm -hmm. Erdogan successfully pushed through some constitutional reforms that allowed him to transition from being the prime minister to president, which is how he's been in power all these years. And I don't think there's an election in Turkey next year. Uh, I'm going to go with no. Uh, on the logic that the guy's already overstayed his welcome. He's uh, losing allies fast in Turkey and the big uh, institutions in that country, the military most prominently, uh, I think are going to lose patience with him and he'll be gone before the end of 2020. So to sum up, we have one uh, vote for it depends, two yeses, he'll be in power by the end of next year, and one vote for no. So uh, all right, let's go to the final part of the podcast where we talk about stories that we're following that may not necessarily be in the news. I'm actually going to lead that off and say I had to uh, 
uh, start reading the New York Times again. I guess technically this is something that's in the news. But the New York Times in the last few days has broken two amazing stories. One is uh, they got a treasure trove of documents from the Communist Party in China about the way they're repressing people in Xinjiang. It's an amazing uh, read, the stuff that they're uh, doing to change the culture and the religion there. It's appalling, uh, but you have to read it. And they also... um, uh, got a, another treasure trove of documents from Iran that details all of the intel steps that Iran takes to uh, master events in Iraq and elsewhere. Uh, so it's fascinating reporting by the New York Times. I give them full credit. They've really uh, restored my faith in American journalism. Uh, Matthew, what are you following? Um, just on your story, Les, I look forward to seeing if all of the, the uh companies in the U.S. that are always talking about their virtues and they won't have events in certain states in the U.S. because they take certain policy decisions, such as bathrooms or uh, uh, immigration restrictions, also take the point of view about China being such an awful place that maybe they would leave that market because they just can't tolerate it. Unfortunately, I I don't think that will happen, but it's an interesting question to ask. The one I'm following, speaking of China is in regards to our two most important allies in Asia. It's Japan and South Korea. There is a, 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 an agreement between those two countries called the General Security of Military Information Agreement. It expires on the 23rd of November, and it enables uh, intelligence sharing between the two countries. There's been a lot of friction between the two over the last uh, six months, and I'm hoping they can find a way to renew that uh, agreement, not because it going away would stop intelligence sharing, but because I think it's an important signal as to whether those two are going to try and work together. We desperately need them to work together uh, in accord so that we can collectively keep a check on China. Jody. I'm going to carry on the trend here on Asia and I'm, I'm rather looking at two stories, but how they relate to each other, and that is how China is losing a grip on its authoritarian ambitions. Right? First, looking at the demonstrations that are escalating massively in Hong Kong. Uh, I sincerely hope that this isn't another Tiananmen situation, uh, but under any circumstance, China's the clear loser here. They don't have control over, over the territory there, and the people there don't support them. And second, related to what you said first, this release of documents about the prison camps in Xinjiang uh, for Uyghur Muslims, the really fascinating thing there is it seems that that was a release made by somebody within the party. And the documents themselves make clear that those policies were directly ordered and carried out by party officials and by President Xi himself. I think that does a lot to undermine China's authority globally and internally. Yeah, it could be a sign of a greater uh, fault line in their own government. Dana? I'm going to bring it back home. I am very interested in the um, president's decision to issue pardons to several uh, members of the U.S. military for convictions for war crimes, uh, apparently over the expressions of concern from uh from legal counsel inside the Department of Defense. So the issue here, I've watched the reaction from people who have retired from military service, people inside, et cetera, is what this does, again, to undermine um, America's stated commitment to rule of law, that we actually have a system a system for, for prosecuting these, these crimes when convicted and alleged, and what it means for communities and countries when, when our service members are abroad that – justice is going to be served if something happens. So again, you take this with 
the decision to withdraw rapidly from Syria, what this does to our ability to partner at a local level. And again, when you have people in uniform showing up at at a local level in a country saying, we're here to help you, you want those people to believe you. And this looks like justice will not be served when a person in uniform does something wrong. All right, that's a wrap. As usual, it's been a pleasure, uh, everyone, and we look forward to getting back together again soon. Tune in next time and uh, this week. I hope everyone has a great turkey day. Happy Thanksgiving. Gobble, gobble.